Are better times ahead, or will we have a fall of pain? That's the key question we're going to address today. I'm G3, and we are back to our regular schedule here at Green Marbles. And today I am joined by Weiss's Jordy Visser, the president and CIO of Weiss, who, like me, is looking forward to getting back into the swing of things. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready to hear Jordy's take on the markets, the economy, and sentiment. And if your sentiment is so inclined, you could engage in a random act of bullishness and rate our show. We would certainly appreciate it. And with that, welcome. Jordy, welcome back. Good to be back. Welcome back to you. Thank you so much. Back to school, back to work. Before we get into the main topic today, I would like to discuss the other main, and that is main the state, where I believe you recently came back from, right? I'm always coming back from Maine throughout the year. But yes, I just got back on Labor Day. So I was up there for most of July. And July was an interesting month up there because the summer just starts. I talk to builders. I talk to people who work on the woodworking side. And as of June, it was insane. There was no inventory in certain towns still. And that was in June. That started to change in July where there started to be some houses coming on at the market, but they were significantly above where they had been before COVID, which is not a surprise. It's across the country. But we're talking about 100% increases in certain places. All of that's come down. Inventory is rising rapidly. The builders are now bringing things to the market that they had finished and they're already seeing price changes on certain regions. I get daily price changes, new listings. And I'll just tell you that the market has more than softened up there. It has gotten to a point where at the higher end, inventory is coming and everyone's trying to get out of stuff that maybe they owned, locals who are, can't believe the type of movement they've seen. And I think the people who bought before COVID are learning that Maine is a little bit harder to live in than they had anticipated. So housing markets weakened. The only other thing I'll say anecdotally is related to the restaurants and the hotels. The labor shortage is still real. And anyone who didn't believe in the labor shortage, I will say the anecdotal side for me that all major employers who are trying to get their people back, anyone who believes we are going back to the regular work week based on what I see in Maine, is out of their mind. Flexible hours is better to think about than work from home. Less about the work from home, more about flexible hours. And that's what I hear from most people up there. They're having trouble keeping people for bartenders and all types of different things because people don't want to go in there certain days a week. They want to have flexibility. They don't want to have a commute, which in Maine is not a big deal, but it can be a big deal for people who just don't want the everyday same life thing and COVID made them kind of question the work-life balance a lot more. And that's a change up there because Maine is a blue-collar place. And I think even for people who are more in the service industry, they're not going back to a world of regular hours. It's not going to happen. I'm going to put a pin in that discussion and return to it because I do want to talk about down here south of Maine on Wall Street what the big Wall Street CEOs have attempted to do. And I have a feeling that you're going to have some thoughts on that. But before we get to that, I want to do a temperature check with you, a post-Labor Day temperature check 
you did a webinar on August 18th. Were you in Maine, by the way, when you did that? No, I was here. Okay. So you came back for the webinar. <laughs> I did. <laughs> All right. Well, you titled the webinar, Is This the First Wave of a New Bull Market? And in that webinar, you highlighted the fact that after a 19% rally off of the lows and hitting resistance at the 200-day moving average, that you saw a correction coming in the offing. That call was right. And so I want to ask you, given the fact that a lot has transpired, it didn't feel like a typical August in terms of the news flow and the like, are you still constructive as we head into the end of the year for risk assets? Yes, I'm definitely constructive, and I still believe that this is a correction with inside an uptrend, and we may go back and retest the lows if the Fed is going to remain, let's say, with a goal of pounding the economy down, meaning if they're going to be focused on a lagging indicator like inflation, which is clearly pointed downward, then the market has to acknowledge it through lower multiples. So I'm constructive, but the reason I'm constructive is as we go through this, a lot has changed over the last two months, which at this point, I don't hear a lot of people acknowledging. So the same stories that were happening in the first part of the year are still a lot of the narratives. And I find that challenging because this whole Bayesian framework that we use, there's a lot of things that have changed, which support the argument that at a minimum, you should be turning more optimistic or less pessimistic. And I just don't hear that going on too much. I think probably the reason why is Powell's Jackson Hole speech really surprised some, given the extent of his hawkishness. We saw the Augustism number come in pretty strong. And so I guess I would ask you, did any of those things adjust your expectations at all? Well, let's go through the components of what drives markets and in particular what the highlight places were in the first six months of the year. Number one, you have the economy. The economy is fine. Nominal GDP came in at close to 9% in the second quarter, and we're still tracking at decent numbers in here. And as you mentioned, we've got a little bump in the ism. The second thing is earnings. Second quarter earnings came out and year over year sales came in close to 14%. Year over year earnings came in at a growth rate of close to 8%. I've said this repeatedly here. I think the challenging part for almost all investors is the transition to a nominal GDP world. Nominal GDP is higher. Nominal GDP is higher because we printed an enormous amount of cash. We gave it out to people. Then we had inflation go higher. And now we have rates going higher. And that brings up the third point about the first part of the year, which is the Fed. Powell may have been more hawkish, but in June, two-year rates peaked just south of 2.5%. As we come in here today, they're just south of 2.5%. Two-year rates and where we expect the Fed to be have not changed much. They were changing dramatically in the first part of the year. So you do have the Fed, which has become more certain, meaning we have a final expectation of Fed funds rate up near 4%, which is where it's been now for a couple months. Now, they're pushing it out a little bit further, and that's because the payroll numbers in particular for July were very strong. But then you get into the fourth part of this, which was driving the beginning of the year, which is inflation. And this is the part that I find the most stubbornness on everyone, including the Fed. There's no way to refute that inflation is coming down. It's impossible. We've now gone 84 days in a row as of recording this podcast where gas at the pump is down. It peaked just above five. And as of this morning, it was down around three and 375. 
and the futures are implying another 25 to 30 cent drop unless we get a change. And every day that we get a bounce in energy, it starts going lower. Headline CPI peaked at 9.1%. Everyone was freaking out. We got a negative monthly number in August or for July. We have a negative forecasted number to be released next week for August on the headline number. So it was minus 0.1. Now we're talking about another minus 0.1 if it comes in line. If it comes in line, year over year will be 8.1%. So we've gone from 9.1 to 8.1. And so let's assume the rest of the year, it goes up to 0.4 for the each month. So then you'd be dealing with minus 0.1, minus 0.1, and then 4.4s or 1.6, which means you're talking about a second half of the year headline CPI annualized of about 3%. Now that's down from 9.1. Same thing goes on for core PCE. You have new lows in one year and two year tips break even. So the inflation stuff has gotten better. And anyone that wants to argue that is just being stubborn. There's absolutely no way to support that it's well, not coming down. Maybe this sounds crazy, but maybe the Fed doesn't care about the inflation numbers. They just want to see the economy getting softer. They want to see earnings coming down. They want to see the unemployment rate going up. They've already got that. When you say they want the unemployment rate coming up, and I hear this from people, when you have a labor shortage, good luck trying to <laughs> go through it. This is a structural problem. You can't fix a structural problem with putting the economy down. There'll still be no people to work. The housing market is weakening. As we come in here today, 30-year fixed rate mortgages are at 6.11%. New highs. They're already crushing the housing market. The housing market is a critical part of the economy, and it was one of the pillars that they had. So they were looking at three things. Unemployment is one, but you have the housing market is another one. Well, they've made that start to come down. The second thing was just inflation, and inflation's coming down. And just to give it, inflation expectations are back where they were before the beginning of the year. The reality is earnings are good. The economy is fine. Inflation is finally heading lower. We have softening in the economy. We're not going to have a collapse or a recession at this point. So what it's going to come to is if you're going to be bearish on things, you have to believe that multiples are going to compress because I don't see earnings collapsing with top line revenue sales of 14% and input costs going down. And that's where the difference is. So I think as we get through September, two things are going to happen. One is maybe people need to see another inflation month where it's not that big. Maybe they're still hanging on with core, thinking core is going to go higher. And if that happens, they can try to be bearish. Maybe they're waiting for the Fed to decide whether they go 50 or 75. 75 is pretty much built in at this point. Maybe they're waiting for that. I don't know. But I'm going to stick with the fact that we had a big move off the lows. Positioning is still light. We've seen a change in growth versus value. I tweeted today that pure growth versus pure value broke through the 200-day moving average for the first time since last year. So when you put all that together, there's definitely a change happening, but I'm not seeing sentiment change or the narratives change. You mentioning positioning is light. Let's talk about the crowded trade in pessimism that we have right now. I've heard you mention this in the morning meetings quite a bit. But can you give a sense of how negative the sentiment is right now? You often refer to CTAs. What are institutions doing or not doing? Let me change it from negative because I think to be fair, sentiment is less negative than it was back in June. Anytime you get a 19% rally, it's difficult. Are there still bear market rally crowds out there? Yes. And what are they focused on? Earnings and recession. So they're still in that. 
And the market's giving you some signs that could turn in there, especially out of Europe with the gas situation and China with COVID. There are places around the globe that could be contagion for the U.S. I can understand the bear market rally crowd, but sentiment has definitely gotten less negative because of the rally, but also because I think it's hard to ignore that gas at the pump has come down, that the inflation data has gone down. So at least some of the market participants are not as, let's say, stubborn as strategists and economists who've put their views out there. The current forecast, consensus forecast for end of year CPI is still 8%. I don't know how you get there based on the numbers I just said, unless you think there's going to be a reacceleration in gas at the pump, which hasn't shown any signs of happening. And if I'm right, gas at the pump does go down to where the futures are, which is sub three and a half. It means the headline CPI is going to have a really hard time because the last four months of last year, we were talking about big CPIs. So if you get 0.4 for the rest of the year, I think you come in around 7%. So economists are still believing that inflation is going to go much higher. So I don't think the sentiment is super bearish, but I will say from clients, they don't feel the need to put money to work. And there's a difference between being negative at this point and just not feeling like you're missing out on anything. And so FOMO is going to have to be the thing that brings people back in. The 19% move scared people, but the correction that's given up over 60% of that move has given people reason to sit on their hands. And I would say apathy towards investing because there's no reason to is there. And that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes the market needs to move and people jump on board. But if they're sitting on their hands and are therefore, quote unquote, underinvested, what does that mean for investors and advisors who are not necessarily putting money to work for the next quarter, but for the next several years? Does this provide an opportunity? I still believe the mistake that people are making is this concept of threading the needle to a soft landing. I don't even know what that means. It's not about a soft landing. It's about when's the next recession. <laughs> you don't want to be invested right before the next recession. And I don't see a recession coming in the near term. Now, most people, especially on Twitter, which, by the way, has been a huge thing for me in terms of learning more about sentiment and where people are feel the strongest, which we can talk about. But I think the pushback is normally about a recession is coming. And the reason was because the isms were trending down. Well, I tweeted this out, but I think people should pay attention to this part who are on the recession side. When you look at a recession, the ism to me has a component that I spend a lot of time on, on whether the chances is coming or not. And that's new orders, less inventories. Gas at the pump came down and all of a sudden we saw a huge jump in new orders, less inventories. It was a seven and a half point jump for what just came out this week. That's a big number. And you have to go back a long way. I think it's to 2012, aside from the months right out of COVID, aside from coming out of that recession, you're talking about a big bump in new orders, less inventories. So inventories are coming back down where they had been building and new orders came back up and gas at the pump is the reason why. And they've been an overlay on this. So as long as you have that going on, I don't think you have to worry about it. But then there's another place where it came in. We've been talking about how consumer confidence was so bad and it had been near record lows. Well, the University of Michigan had its second largest monthly increase since 2013. So you've had a big shift in consumer confidence too. And I've talked about this on this podcast, but savings accounts are still robust with cash. And I think it's really hard for people to fully grasp how much cash was a printed 
the deferrals on payments for mortgages, for student loans, all of that. We just don't know how much buying power pre-COVID because of COVID is still sitting there. But way that'll filter out is that nominal GDP will stay higher than what's expected. And as long as inflation comes down, we should be sitting with kind of like the 2% growth area, maybe 3% with an ism around 50. I think that's the most likely scenario. And I don't see a recession coming anytime soon. And so your point is, if a recession isn't coming anytime soon, you do want exposure to equities. You can't sit on your hands for very long when you've had a 20% correction in markets. 20% corrections in housing, 20% corrections in stocks create opportunities. We've already discounted a recession based on what stocks have done. If we don't get it now, then I think stocks have to go right back up. And that's what I've been thinking for at least the last eight weeks in terms of once we saw a peak in inflation, I still think stocks are going to head higher unless the Fed is going to get super aggressive on creating a recession. And I think that's what the market is banking on. Okay, a couple of more questions here. You've just mentioned you've been tweeting a fair bit, and I've certainly taken note of the fact that you weren't on Twitter a couple of months ago, and now you have a couple of thousand followers, and you're pretty active, and you're sort of wielding your, your Bloomberg chart skills as well. <laughs> a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's also true of uh, 280 characters uh, on Twitter, I think. Can you just explain what's behind this newfound interest in Twitter and how has it helped your market analysis? What Twitter has really done, which surprised me, all I'm doing is posting, as we call it here, green marbles. I'm just trying to find charts and different things that I'm not seeing people post, which is really the way I look at markets. I'm looking at what's happening. So as of today, the S&P has fallen, given back 60% of the rally off the lows. Factors, which are things that almost no one on Twitter ever posts about, the factor move of beta over quality is very correlated over time to two things. The S&P this year, it had first half of the year. Whenever you wanted to be negative on the S&P, you go by quality, safer balance sheets versus beta, more junkier or higher vol companies. Well, that's not working the way it was before. Meaning when the equity market has fallen here, especially in August where the S&P was down 4%, beta outperformed quality by over 10%. That's not normal. So when you start seeing those things, like, oh, okay, so we're getting a change. But it also correlates to the ism. So when beta is outperforming quality, the ism usually is going higher and it leads. So I'm looking at right now what's happening with beta versus quality. And when, well, if this is going to be confirmation, that marble is going to have to go down. So I'd rather have the S&P going down, have beta outperforming quality. And I'm looking at two things going, they're normally correlated. They're not right now. Which one is right? I'm going to focus on the beta over quality and the S&P and see what else is happening. And guess what? One other thing, pure growth versus pure value, as I mentioned, broke through the 200-day moving average for the first time this year. That's a synthetic guide for kind of multiples coming down and a recession happening. And right now, growth is outperforming value, which means, again, the energy trade, the inflation trade is lagging. And when I post that in Twitter, I'm getting responses. And it helps me with sentiment because the biggest pushback, then I can spend more time on that thing. And right now, the number one thing in Twitter that I hear, the housing market is so weak that the economy is going to go into a recession. And so just to, so I understand. So you put up a tweet, you describe some of these trends that you're seeing, some of these relationships, growth versus value, et cetera, et cetera. But then somebody then says, oh, contraire, Jordy, housing is falling off a cliff and therefore everything that you said 
doesn't speak to what's going to happen in the future, look at the housing data. Yeah. And again, these are coming from very thoughtful people who just have the other side of the view. Yeah. I've also learned in Twitter that this concept of trolls exists too. So <laughs> people can call me an idiot as much as they want when I put out a Bloomberg chart or say, this isn't real or whatever. I don't care. Right. <laughs> this is not my thing. I like having people that go through it. But for the people who are thoughtful that are responding to it, it gives me some good things to look at. And so I had one person in particular who I respect tremendously and we were trained in a similar way. And I'll put a shout out to him, Michael Kantrowitz, and he literally has a different view than I do. So that's the kind of thing that if he's right, I want to know what he's looking at. And I want to spend more time on that to get a sense. So I know where the differences are between us. And it's that type of thing that really helps me with Twitter that I wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. Because to be honest with you, I don't talk to many people in the business. And so if you don't go to dinners and you do all of your own work and you spend your time looking at your own marbles and going through it, it gets it very difficult. Twitter's opened up a world of people to send me the other side. And then when they follow me, I tend to go follow them if they're putting out good responses. And now I've learned about other people that are putting out daily content that I like. That's great. And you talked about your training, which was at one of the big Wall Street firms that have, of course, demanded a return to five days per week in the office. I'm sure younger professionals saw this coming, but many of them can't be very happy about it. I'm sure there are any number of reasons motivating the big Wall Street CEOs to do this. But in light of your commentary about what you experienced in Maine with people wanting a more flexible work life, in your view, is this a smart move by the big Wall Street banks or are they just essentially putting out a recruiting advertisement for crypto and other environments where the workplace is more dynamic? Again, I don't know if what they've put out publicly is what they're saying behind closed doors, but I will say I have very strong views just based on my own experience here. We've hired some people over the summertime and the reason they chose the place and one in particular, and I won't go through the details, they had offers from other places that were bigger than us in terms of the size. They weren't the banks, but they were hedge funds. And one of the main reasons was kind of the flat structure here and the ability to have more freedom to get involved with a bunch of things and to learn and have that environment. The problem with the working from the office side, I left Morgan Stanley in 2003. I'm grateful for every day that I worked there. I learned an enormous amount. Everything that we talk about in this podcast, I've learned from my time at Morgan Stanley and subsequently on. But they taught me about markets they taught me about the way that they work. They threw me in emerging markets. So I learned about everything I could possibly learn. But I left because I hated the commute, because I hated the non-flexible hours. I hated the concept of not knowing what my pay was going to be at the end of the year because it was discretionary and there was no formula that made much sense to me because it was never put out there what I was supposed to do. And so I enjoyed my time there for knowledge reasons, but I left to get away from the commute of being in at a certain time and all this. So my daughter has told, my oldest daughter has told me many times, you're the world's uh, oldest millennial. And I can relate to what's going on. But I think because of COVID, this thing of work from home has to be thought about in flexible hours. And I think the banks are absolutely going to give in to that part. Five days a week, forced to go during commuting hours, it's just not going to work because people got a taste of what it's like for the work-life balance. And also, as we start talking in future episodes, I spent an enormous amount of time on my sleep score 
during COVID because I didn't commute as much. And even though I came in the office beginning in August of 20, I wasn't in and I'm still not in five days a week. If I need to be, I will be. I have an interview later. I have a presentation tomorrow and we're working on some new funds. So I think for everyone that we're attracting, they're demanding flexible hours. I think it's a part of what's going to happen. And I also think, and this is the final point I'll say on it, there needs to be fun at the office and fun is kind of created with uncertainty. And if you have to be in the same time every day and you have to leave the same time every day, and then you have to go out to dinners, your sleep score is going to go down. And if your sleep score is going down, productivity goes down. This is 100%. Everybody running a business should just get everyone an aura ring, measure their sleep score, look at what it is. And if they've got employees whose sleep score is low, those people can't be as productive. And if they've got people that are coming in less days, but they're in there and they're still being productive, I'd rather have an employee working two days a week in the office, three days at home with a sleep score up in the 80s and 90s where I can see the work being done either through P&L and as a portfolio manager or through creativity with the data scientist. It doesn't really matter to me, but I think there has to be more than you need to be in the office. You don't need to be in the office. I think it's changing forever. I think that every employee of the Aura Ring Company should be following you on Twitter. You know how much I like it. You've got one. I, I got you going on this yeah. whole thing. Hopefully your sleep scores improve from where it started when we were there. But if it hasn't, we can talk about that off the air. All right. Sounds good, Jordy. Thank you so much. Looking forward to getting back into the swing of things. Same here, G3. Thanks. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.